You can uh, take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Chronicles 29. I'm going to give you a head start this morning because you probably haven't been in 2 Chronicles 29 any time lately. <clears throat> you find all the little firsts and seconds in the middle of the Old Testament, and 2 Chronicles is the last one of those books. And while you're finding it, let me, um, and while I'm finding it for that matter, let me ask you to answer a question for me. How many of you have ever been trained in first aid and or CPR? Oh, pretty much a lot of people. It's, that's nice to know. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, if you have, and, and when you have, there's a lot to it, isn't there? Especially first aid. There are so many different ways that, that so many different types of training and different modules you can go through. I've, I've, a couple different times in my life through jobs that I've had, I've had to receive CPR training and some first aid. And then a few years ago, um, when Dawn and I became foster parents, we had to go through pretty extensive uh, first aid and CPR training. Uh, most of it was online. But there were a lot of different units in it, everything from dealing with things like shock and strokes to severe bleeding, uh, diabetic emergencies. There were probably 11 or 12 chapters in, in the first aid manual we had to go through before you even get to, to CPR. Uh, and honestly, I don't know how well I would do in a lot of these situations and how much I will remember today. But one of the things that they kind of drill into you and that I think I remember pretty well is the order of what to do when you first come across a medical emergency. You know, something bad has happened and you come on the scene. First thing you do is you clear the area. And then, and then you call 911. And then what they'll tell you usually is to look for, the, look for the ABCs of first aid. Anyone remember that expression? The ABCs. What are, what are the ABCs of, of first aid? Airway, breathing, and circulation, right? And those things are very important. That's, that's the priority because if someone is not breathing freely and unobstructedly and their heart is not beating, it doesn't really matter a whole lot what else you do to them because you're not going to help them a whole lot, right? So you've got to have your priorities. Um, I want to talk this morning about a different kind of first aid. I want to talk about first aid for a nation, okay? Not our nation necessarily, although we certainly need some first aid, but I want to talk about Judah in the 8th century B.C. You'll say, why are you going to talk about that? Well, it's very relevant to where we are today as a country, but also as individuals. Um, last week, we began talking about this guy named King Hezekiah. He was a king of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom of Israel, a long time ago, and um, if you didn't get to, get to be here last week and you didn't get to take in the message, let me encourage you to go ahead and find it on the podcast or find it on the Facebook feed. Uh, you can look it up. It's really kind of a background message on the history of what was going on when Hezekiah came to the throne. But, but rather than rehashing all the details from last week, what I want to do is summarize by, by just reminding you that when Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah, the country was in critical condition. It was in very, very bad shape. It was in a medical emergency. And this is about 715 B.C., just for reference, if you're into ancient history, it's about 715 B.C. Hezekiah comes on the throne of Judah. Now, the nation has suffered a series of invasions. The northern confederacy of Syria and Israel has come down from the north. They have killed about 20,000 soldiers. They've taken a whole bunch of people captive. So it was a big, horrible incursion. The Philistines have begun attacking Judah from the west. The Edomites have, be have begun attacking Judah and invading from the southeast. All this is happening around the same time. And um, King Hezekiah's father, who we met last week, a guy by the name of Ahaz, who had rebelled in just about every possible way against God, 
had actually formed an alliance with the brutal Assyrian Empire, who was the big bully on the block in those days, got them to come in, and he had basically invited them to move into the neighborhood, and they were perched right on Judah's doorstep. We compared it last week to you know, inviting the fox to come in and guard the hen house. So Ahaz had done that. So this is the situation that Hezekiah finds himself in when he ascends to the throne of Judah in about 715 B.C. Now, before we talk about what he was going to do first and what he ended up doing, I want to do something a little different. I want to, I want to shoot you forward 14 years. All right, so I want to give you a little taste of what was, a, what was going to happen about 14 years in the future. So now, like 701 B.C., because I want you to see what this broken and desperate nation of Judah was headed for. I want you to see what was going to happen in a very short time. What I'm going to read you is actually from 2 Kings 18. Uh, but at this point in 2 Kings, okay, fast forward to the 701 B.C., at this point, Assyria has now invaded Judah. Assyria has pretty much decimated a number of the towns and cities of the southern kingdom near Jerusalem, and now they are setting up a siege around the city of Jerusalem itself, around the capital. And the Assyrian field commander comes to the walls of the city, and he makes a speech. And there are a lot of people from Judah kind of sitting on and around the walls, and they hear what he's saying, and he speaks in Hebrew, so they'll be able to understand him. And here is what he says. Here's what the Assyrian Basically, the commanding officer says to the people of Judah, he says, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. And come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So this is what is coming for Judah. This is the moment of truth that they will face, and it's about 14 years away. And Judah when Hezekiah comes on the scene, is in absolutely no shape to handle what is coming their way. They'll never deal with it. So if you're Hezekiah, if you're Hezekiah, here's the question. What do you do first? In this emergency, what do you do first? Your nation is in dire need of first aid. It needs emergency attention. So what are the ABCs? What is the priority? What do you do? What is your first priority when you come on the scene? Now, perhaps the most obvious or natural answer would go something like this. Hey, first of all, Hezekiah, you've got to do something to secure your borders. You have to do something militarily or at least diplomatically to make sure that Judah could even survive. So make some deals, you know, make some friends in the area. Try to establish some sort of peace with your immediate neighbors before Assyria comes in to try to take everybody over and blow everybody up. You've got to stop the bleeding. And indeed, some of the nations around Judah had started to think this way. In fact, history tells us that the Philistine city of Ashdod was trying to put together an alliance 
to, to go up against the Assyrians, and they actually invited Judah to become part of it. So, you know, if the Philistines are reaching out, it must be bad, right? So, so why not at least make peace with the Philistines and get a little bit of, of reprieve? So what to do? What to do if you're Hezekiah? This really does speak to us in our lives today, by the way. Because life throws a lot at us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, especially during times of, of real stress for ourselves and our families. I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like we, like Hezekiah, are being attacked on multiple fronts at the same time. Problems at work, problems at home, problems in our marriages, problems with our kids, problems with our parents, problems with finances, problems with school, problems with our schedules, problems with friends, problems at church, problems with our health. Shall I go on? And you know what? These problems, isn't it nice how they all like line up neatly and they never come at the same time? They just get for, you know, just single file and you just face one and then the other. No, never, right? They pile on instead. So what do we tackle first? What are the ABCs of dealing with this, this multiple front attack on our lives? Well, Hezekiah, for his part, going back a few couple thousand years here, Hezekiah is going to decline the invitation to join the alliance that Ashdod is proposing. And that is because Hezekiah's got something else in mind. I'm going to kind of talk us through 2 Chronicles 29 through 31. I'm not going to read all the verses to you. We'll read a few of them. But starting in 2 Chronicles 29, 3, it says in the very first year of Hezekiah's reign. So he's just come to the throne, and it says in the first month of, his, of, of the year. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the first month of his reign, but it's the first month of the, of the Jewish year. Okay, so Hezekiah decides, he, he calls a meeting. And he calls a meeting not of the military leaders, not of the political leaders, not of the royal family, but he calls a meeting of the priests and the Levites. So he basically invites the worship leaders to a big meeting. And he says this, guys, we're in trouble. Here's what we're going to do. First things first. We've got to fix the temple. We've got to fix the, we've got to fix the temple. My evil dad just totally desecrated the temple, and we've got to do something about that now. Now, how much sense does this make politically and militarily? Zero, right? You think it's a pretty dumb idea. The temple? I mean, can't this wait? Hezekiah, we've got all these other emergencies crying out for our attention. Yeah, maybe the temple eventually needs to be repaired and cleansed, but is that really the first thing that we need to do? But I think Hezekiah understood something. I think Hezekiah understands here that a holy God, the God of Israel, who Isaiah calls the Holy One of Israel, he is not going to rescue or exalt a nation that is as spiritually corrupt as Judah is right now. Why would he? What glory would God get from exalting or rescuing a nation that was acting like that? That would only confuse the issue. And so Hezekiah says, you want to make an agreement with someone? You want to, you want to make a pact? You want to make a covenant? You want to form an alliance? Hezekiah says, well, so do I. Look at verse 10, chapter 29. He says, here's, here's my idea for an alliance. It is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's make an alliance with him. And then he says, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Brothers and sisters, Hezekiah got it right. Whatever other challenges you or I may be facing, if you're not walking with the Lord, step one is to get right with him. Step one is to get right with God. Does God care about your marriage? 
Yes. Does God care about your kids? Yes. Your job? Yes. Your grades? Yes. Your finances? Yes. But these things are not God's first priority. His relationship with you is his first priority in your life, and he is calling you back to himself and then to all of these other things in that order. You say, well, God, I don't know if I have time for that. I mean, there's so many things on my plate right now. I mean, letting you in and, and you know, it's just, it's just too much to think about. Fine, have it your way. But you might be surprised if you do decide to approach God first how much time you find that you really do have because he'll give you the time. Here's what happens. It turns out that this little alliance that Ashdod was proposing and putting together, it, it got crushed pretty much right out of the gate by the Assyrians. They just came in and wiped it out. Hezekiah was actually really smart not to sign up for it. But after that, God started working. He started working in Egypt. He started working in Babylon. He started working in Carchemish. He started working in a lot of other areas where the Assyrian Empire was involved and stirring up trouble for the Assyrians in a lot of other places so that the Assyrians had to say, you know what, Judah? We'll take you over later. You just stay here and be good, and we'll come back and we'll crush you in a few years. We've got some other things to take care of. And so Assyria put, Assyria put Judah on the back burner. And it gave Hezekiah time, the time that he needed to lead the people to repair and revitalize their relationship with the Lord. You know what? God can give you that space. God can give you that space and the time that you need to get right with him if you make him the first thing. And if our experience is anything like Hezekiah's, the first thing that God will call us to do is to clean house. To clean house. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what it meant for Hezekiah. This, look what Hezekiah does. He tells the priests and the Levites, he tells them, and this is all in chapter 29, he says, go into the temple, and I want you to get rid of all the garbage, all the idols, all the pagan worship materials, that huge Syrian-style altar that Ahaz had put in place of God's altar, all that stuff, just get rid of it. Get rid of it. And there must have been a lot of it because it says it took the priests eight whole days to get it all out. And then eight more days to repair all the original implements that Ahaz had broken but that God had specified for use. And they took all this unclean stuff and they threw it down the hill into the ravine, into the Kidron Valley on the east side of the temple, and they reconsecrated all of the original items for God's use. And they made a huge sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And then Hezekiah invited the whole nation to come to a big feast where they would rededicate the temple. And lots of people came from lots of places, bringing so many sacrifices with them that the priests and the Levites were overwhelmed because God had been for a long time longing to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. And Hezekiah's obedience had given him the avenue to do this. So now God was working. Now, that's what it meant for Hezekiah to clean house. What does it mean for you and me to clean house? What does it mean to clean house? Does it mean to clean up my life? Does clean house mean that I need to clean up my language and stop losing my temper all the time and stop stealing things from the job site and stop talking bad about my boss and stop looking at porn and stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend and get help for my addiction? Is that what clean, is that what clean house means? No. Oh, those things will happen. Those things need to happen, but as we'll see, that comes a little later. No, clean house. Clean house means cleanse the temple. Cleanse the temple. What was the temple? Well, it was the place where people went to meet with God and worship God. It was the place where God was enthroned between the cherubim. That was the temple in Jerusalem. But you know what? As a follower of Jesus, your temple is not in Jerusalem, right? 
And it's a good thing because there is no temple in Jerusalem. Where's your temple? Yeah, it's in your heart. And so cleansing the temple or cleaning house for you, it means going into your heart, just like the priest went into that temple, and finding out the things that are taking up the place where God is supposed to be. And taking those things off the throne of your life. Christian, God calls you on a regular basis to take inventory of your own heart and to identify those things that either need to be removed and rolled down the hill into the ravine or at least taken off the throne of your life and put in their proper place. Now, these may be good things. They may be things like family, professional or academic or athletic success. It may be a favorite hobby or a favorite passion or it may be a cause or a political agenda of some kind. It may even be a ministry you're involved in that has become number one in your life over and above Jesus Christ. Or it may be something worthless on the throne of your heart like sin or distractions or addictions or an obsession with worldly wealth, the need to be admired by people, the need to control your own destiny and have perfect security all the time. Whatever has become a non-negotiable in your life such that God is now taking a back place to it in your decision making. Yeah, I know I need to let God in. I know God's in charge. But first, got to get this thing fixed. i got to get this thing right. This, is, this needs to be in place. And then we'll, we'll let God in. Whatever that thing is, that thing has become a God to you. And it needs to be repented of and removed from its pedestal. That's what clean house means. See, God is calling you back into intimate relationship with him where all these other things, as important and as good as they may be, are submitted to his plan and his purposes for you because he wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you'll be able to serve him powerfully and joyfully and to love him more and more. But first, he needs you to make room for him. And he will do that. And when you do that, he is ready. He is ready to come in and to set things right. He'll do it. And here's the really cool thing. And this is an advantage for us. The people in Hezekiah's time, they had to prepare the way, in a sense, for their restoration and healing by doing all these offerings to cleanse the temple. But you know what? We don't have to do that. Praise the Lord. As New Testament believers, God has done that for us. And the rest of this story here is going to point us to how God did that in our lives. Because Hezekiah's got another decision to make now. Okay, we've, we've, we've cleansed the temple I mean, we've done A and B. You know, we have the ABCs. A was like, get all this garbage out of the temple. B is reconsecrate, rededicate the temple. What is C? What's the next thing we have to do? Okay, maybe it's time to make some military moves. Maybe it's time to, to reach out for some alliances and make some diplomatic decisions. Hezekiah says, well, here's what we're going to do next. We're going to throw a party. We're going to celebrate Passover. You're going to what? We're going to celebrate Passover. Um, okay. Well... Passover hadn't been done in a long time. Not the right way like it was supposed to be done. And so Hezekiah says, we're going to do Passover. And the story of this historic Passover is, and Passover you probably know is the ceremony that commemorates the time that God delivered the Israelites from the nation of Egypt. And you can read about this, this celebration in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, this particular one. I, what I want to do is just kind of talk you through it. And I want to make a couple of really interesting observations that I think are really powerful. First of all, this Passover celebration in, in 2 Chronicles 30 is not just for the nation of Judah. It's pretty wild, and it was kind of unexpected, but right at the beginning of the chapter, we see that Hezekiah has got a heart, not just for his people that he's king over, not just for the southern kingdom, but he's thinking about all of God's people. And so Hezekiah makes a, a big effort to invite 
the people of the northern kingdom, the ones who had just been attacking him a few years ago, to his Passover feast. Now by this time, you need to know this, northern Israel wasn't even a thing anymore. It wasn't even a nation. It was gone. The Assyrians had taken over the whole country. They had taken many of the people captive and removed them to other lands. They had replaced these people with people from, people from all over other parts of their empire. So now you had this kind of mixed multitude living in the northern kingdom. And over time, the Israelites who remained there, because there were some, they would intermarry with these people from the other nations, and their descendants would be the people that we know as the Samaritans from Jesus' time. This is where the Samaritans came from. So these people are very spiritually messed up. But Hezekiah is going to reach out to them anyway. Although most of their leaders scoffed at the invitation. You see, the northern kingdom hadn't really worshipped properly in, in hundreds of years because their first king, Jeroboam, had set up a big idol right in Bethel and they were all supposed to go there instead of going to Jerusalem to the temple. And so they were so lost. But Hezekiah reaches out And even though the leaders don't necessarily come, a lot of the common people from the north decide they're going to do it, and they make the trip down to Jerusalem. You see, when it comes to God making a way for his people to come back to him, he isn't satisfied just to reach out to the church people who have maybe gotten a little bit lost along the way, because that's what Judah was. Judah was like the church people. They had had some good kings. Their worship was okay for a while. You know, they kind of knew the, the Lord. They kind of knew what things were like and what to do and, and how to do things. But the people in the north were totally lost by this point. They were gone. But God's heart is bigger. He doesn't just want to reach out to the church people. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been living. It doesn't matter who you've been hanging around with. It doesn't matter how messed up your life has gotten. It doesn't matter when the last time is that you came to church. It doesn't matter how badly you have been betrayed or hurt or abused by other people or how far you've run away from God in the process. God is reaching out to you. He is still inviting you to commit or to recommit yourself to him. He has made a way for you to return to him even if you're not a church person. And even if your friends who are not here today, if you're a church person, you can invite them. You want to hear something that's even kind of wild and even a little more scandalous about this Passover in in chapter 30? Um, They didn't get everything right. The people didn't obey all the rules. That that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? You see, what, what happened, Hezekiah got this idea, it was the first month of the year. Well, when does Passover take place? in the first month of the year. So it's like getting an idea, you know, on April 1st and saying, oh, we got to throw a big party. When's it supposed to happen? Well, like April 2nd. Well, we can't do that. The priests don't have time to prepare. We don't have time to get the the, the invitations out. The temple's all messed up. And Hezekiah's like, look, I don't want to wait a whole year. This is an emergency. We've got to do something. So he gets the leaders together and he says, guys, what if we just put it off a month and had Passover the second month of the year instead of the first month of the year? That's pretty radical, right? It's kind of like trying to have the Olympics in 2021 instead of 2020, right? Only one big difference. The Olympics in 2021, I thought, were really depressing. This Passover was anything but depressing. It was actually really awesome. People showed up. People show up from all over the place, a lot more people than they're expecting. And having brought their Passover lambs to be sacrificed, and they're all excited to participate in the feast, but there's one problem. And it's a big problem. Most of these people were not really all that familiar with what was supposed to happen at a Passover. They hadn't done it before. They didn't know how it was supposed to go. These are kind of like people who want to come back to church, 
Maybe like some of your friends that want to come back to church, but they have no idea what to wear, how to act, what to say. You know, what if I end up looking like an idiot in front of God and all these people? I don't want to go there. And in, in the case of these northern Israelites, most of them had not made sure that they were ceremonially clean. And in Numbers chapter 9, it says you have to be ceremonially clean in order to participate with everybody in the Passover. This had to do with certain diseases you may have had recently or whether you had touched a dead body or whether you had touched somebody else who was unclean for one of these reasons. There were a lot of different laws. But if you were ceremonially unclean, you weren't supposed to be there observing the Passover with everybody else. Well, what are the priests and Levites supposed to do? All these unclean people start showing up for Passover. Well, this is, like Hezekiah's gotten them into a situation here. You know, maybe he had gone a little too far. After all, some of them remembered that Hezekiah's great-grandfather, a king by the name of Uzziah, although he was otherwise a pretty good king, he was a very good king, but at the end of his kingly career, he had kind of made some big mistakes. In fact, he had trespassed on the priest's responsibilities and tried to take over some things for himself, and God had struck him with leprosy. And so the priests and the Levites could very well have been thinking, you know what, is this another Uzziah? What's going to happen here with Hezekiah? Maybe he's taken us too far. Maybe we shouldn't have listened to him. But there was a big difference. Uzziah had interfered with the priest's duties because he was full of pride. Hezekiah's heart is for God, and it's for his people. And in verse 18, in humility, Hezekiah prays to God, and he asks him, Lord, just this once, please pardon all these people. And it says that God heard Hezekiah's prayer and that he healed the people, probably meaning that he forgave them. Because listen, it was more important to God that these people come back to him with their whole hearts than that they get everything just right. Reminds me of that woman in the Gospels that fought her way through a big crowd to get to Jesus, even though she had been bleeding and, and ceremonially unclean because of that for the last 12 years. And then she did something really unkosher, didn't she? She reached out and touched Jesus' clothes which theoretically spread the uncleanness onto him. Do you know what happened with Jesus? It went the other way. He healed her, and then he commended her for her faith in reaching out. Look, the leeway that God gives Hezekiah and the people here is not an excuse for us to just willy-nilly defy God's Word or make up our own rules for how to approach God. I think we were very clear about that last week, that God makes up the rules for us to approach Him in the way that we come to Him. We don't make up those rules. We don't decide how it happens. But here's what you can take away from this. You can approach God with a broken and humble heart. You can respond to His invitation to return to Him and repent even if you don't get all the words right in your prayer, even if you don't have all your theology straight, even if you might not know a whole lot about the Bible, you might come back to God and you might want to talk to God and you might say, it's been a long time since I've really been with you, Lord, and you want to pray, but as you, as you pray, you feel that the words are kind of coming out wrong and you sound kind of goofy. But you know what? God is not parsing your words. He's listening to your heart. Some of the most beautiful prayers I have ever heard as a pastor are among the goofiest prayers I've ever heard. God is a holy God, yes, and he wants you to approach him with an open and humble heart, but he is not going to reject you on a technicality. 
So don't let your lack of prayer expertise or your lack of Bible knowledge or anything else like that keep you from seeking God. You know what? One of the best prayers in the whole Bible that is, is approved and commended by Jesus himself is one of the simplest prayers in the whole Bible, and it goes like this. Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what it's all about. In a lot of ways, that's what prayer is all about. And that's what Passover is all about. Mercy for sinners. And, and of course, Passover, we know now, is just a symbol of something much better that was coming. About 750 years after these events, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem and he was acclaimed by the common people as their king. He came to this very location, the temple. And the temple by that time had been destroyed and rebuilt, but it was still the temple of God. It was still the center of, of worship life for all of God's people. And the first thing that Jesus did, do you remember? He cleaned house. Right? He got rid of all those money changers and those merchants who were defiling the outer courts where the people were supposed to come meet with God. Jesus cleaned house. He spent the next few days being examined, being tested being scrutinized by the nation's leaders, just like the Passover lamb for a few days was supposed to be watched and observed and scrutinized to make sure there was no impurity. In Jesus, there was found no impurity. And then Jesus shocked everybody when he gave himself as the ultimate Passover lamb to forgive the sins of his people and to bring us back to God. Now, what can we do in response to this? Well, first of all, we need to look to Jesus and to him alone to forgive us and to make us right with God, because that's the only way it can happen. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes in communion. But is there anything else beyond that that we should do? Well, it's confession time. I said something last week that wasn't precisely true. Here's what I said, and I, I said that Hezekiah was the first king ever to destroy the high places in Judah, and the high places, we talked about that a lot. These, these are these, these, these illegal shrines where people would worship in the wrong way or even maybe worship the wrong god sometimes. Well, technically, Hezekiah did not destroy the high places. Let me explain. What actually happened was this. At the end of this Passover celebration, the people of Judah are so overjoyed and they are so grateful that God has restored their relationship with him that they themselves go all over the land of Judah and they destroy the high places. They break everything down. They break down the idols. They toss everything into the garbage heap. Hezekiah didn't remove the high places. The people did. Isn't that awesome? They did it. Now, I need to tell you, this did not immediately solve all the problems that Judah was facing. Some of these people who attended this Passover celebration would end up losing their homes. Some of them would end up being taken into captivity. Some of them would end up being killed by the Assyrian army. But when the great moment of truth came that we read about earlier, in 701 B.C., when the Assyrian commander stood at the gates of Jerusalem to issue his final threat and to give the people of Judah one last opportunity to turn their backs on God. Now, they were ready. They were ready. 
And we're going to see in a few weeks how that turned out. Brothers and sisters, we do not clean up our lives in order to receive God's forgiveness or to impress Him in some way with our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness. But after God redeems us by the blood of Jesus, after He invites us back to a love relationship with Him in Christ, and then He even adopts us as His sons and daughters, how could we ever respond to that kind of love by acting in ways that defile God's name and defile ourselves. And so out of joy, out of gratitude, in the power of the Holy Spirit, who now lives in the cleansed temple of our hearts, we go out and we break down our high places, seeking to live transformed lives, holy lives, that will be pleasing to the God who saved us. That's what happens. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Holiness. Holiness. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And when the day comes when we face our toughest challenges, and we will, challenges that may even tempt us to deny our faith in Christ, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. Just like Hezekiah and his people were. And God will be glorified in us no matter what happens. Let's pray.